Thanks, Aaron. Morning. Great to see you all here. Uh, for those of you who don't worship with us regularly, my name is Devin, uh, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors at High Point. Uh, if you haven't been looking at your liturgical calendars, it would be easy to forget that this is the third Sunday of Easter. So consider this your friendly reminder that Jesus is still risen, <laughs> that he's as alive as you and I are, that he's not a figure from antiquity, he's our contemporary. I've got a little bit of family business to do today before we really get into the message, so hang with me for a second. If you have been a part of High Point Church for any length of time, if you've gone to an Explore class, if you've gotten involved in any of our ministries, then you might have heard somebody from High Point describe our, quote, ministry model, like the, the way we think that the life of God is manifest in our community. And we boil it down to three words, connect, grow, and serve. And because I don't get to preach on this text today, I'm just going to use it here to explain Connect, Grow, Serve. But if you're going to look at John chapter 15, there's this great image of Christian life as the vine and the branches. Sound familiar? Right? So connect. Connect with God. Connect with the rest of the body of Christ. Get grafted into the vine who is Jesus. Grow. Because you're in the vine and Jesus is giving life to you, you're gonna grow. But then the point to the growth isn't just to grow and become a more impressive branch in the vine. The point is to bear fruit, the fruit of good works, serve. And as a church like ours grows, the opportunities for service, the need for service, the need for, for good works increases pretty much in proportion to the number of all of us who come together for worship. If you're gonna look at the second chapter of Acts, suddenly the church is 2,000 people out of nowhere, and the apostles are finding that they can't really help meet all the needs in the community and be dedicated to the word of God, so they need some other people to step up and help with that really, really tangible, hands-on expression of the love of Christ. And we call those people deacons. Uh, we, we have an awesome board of deacons here at this church. And one, uh, one way that the deacons want to help all of us serve more, serve better, hear about where the needs are, and then get involved in meeting those needs is just what we're going to call the, quote, serve booth. So literally, right outside those two main double doors and a little bit to the left, there's kind of a purple sign hanging there that says, serve here. And every week, you're going to see some deacons standing out there ready to tell you about service opportunities in the community, both in the church and outside the church. Where is the need so that we can be zealous for good works? Uh, and I'll just tell you, right now, today, we have one of those needs. In two weeks, we're going to have a guest preacher here. His name's Mike Woodruff. He's a great pastor from another state. And we want to host a luncheon for him. So on May the 7th, after the second service, we need some volunteers who are going to show up and do some very, very practical, hands-on, tangible ministry. We need people who can help to set up the luncheon. We need people who can serve as hosts and kind of direct traffic. We need people who are willing to stick around and then just clean up afterwards. Really simple, practical stuff. You don't need a Master of Divinity degree to do it, but it's the kind of work that without it, the church just doesn't happen. It just doesn't run. So if on May the 7th, you're available, and you'd love to do something really simple and practical and high impact that will help us welcome a great pastor from another state and also be a blessing to everybody else who attends that luncheon, please, after service, walk out those double doors just to my left, 
You'll see some smiling deacons there, and they're just going to take some information from you. All right, now let's turn to the Gospel of John. Um, Before I read our text today, I just want to say, if uh, if you're opening your Bibles, go ahead and close them. (laughs) I'm really sorry about this, but uh, this is the thing about John. If once you have taken John and translated the Gospel of John into English, you are already wrong. Or at least you're missing something, even if you're not wrong. The way that John works, John is just so playful in his language, and he's playful for a reason. Remember, the the, the verses we're about to read, the first 18 verses of John, he begins by talking about the Word of God, and he talks about how the Word was with God and how the Word was God. So one word, with God, but also God, there's this kind of like twofold reality that all inheres in the one word. And that's the way that John uses language throughout the gospel. When he says one thing, especially when Jesus says one thing, Jesus usually means at least two things whenever he talks. I mean, the classic example here is from chapter three, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about what it takes to inherit eternal life, right? And What does Jesus say? Well, we all know it. You must be born again. At least that's how it reads in English. I mean, the tricky thing here is that the Greek word is anothen, and anothen means again, but it also means from above. It means both at the same time. You must be born again, but being born again means being born from above. So a lot of times when when Jesus is speaking in John, there's that kind of twofold resonance of meaning that's happening at the same time. So for today, when I read these next 18 verses, I have gone through and I've just kind of amended and shifted the translation that we usually use, the NIV, not because like I think the NIV is terribly wrong, but just because I think that sometimes the people who translated the NIV chose to emphasize one of the meanings of the words instead of the ones that I'm gonna preach about today. So you can follow along on the screen and I apologize for being such a nerd. Let's turn to the text. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made. What has come to be in Him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not grasped it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not receive him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human will or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. 
But the only begotten Son, who is himself God and is on the chest of the Father, has made him known. The word of the Lord. Lord God, thank you for yourself. Thank you that even when you are beyond our comprehension, you desire to be known, and so you come to make yourself known in ways that we can receive you, that you're leading us higher and higher and higher up towards you, up towards all truth. Lord God, today, come and proclaim yourself. Lord, speak to this people what's on your heart, through my heart, to the hearts of these people, from your mind, through my mind, to the minds of these people, that we would become more like you. Lord, there is so much here. There are so many good things for your people. Take what you want to take and make it come alive, we pray. We draw near to listen. pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So imagine a water balloon being filled straight from a fire hydrant. That is how it feels to preach the gospel of John. There is so much coming at you, coming at you all the time. And in these 18 verses that I just read, you you can rest comfortably knowing that I'm not gonna try to do all of it today. Uh, We're gonna do a few sermons in a row. So if if you are following along in your Bible, you should just know mostly I'm gonna focus on verses one to four, 13 to 14 and 18, thereabouts. Can't promise that I won't go off course every now and again if I get excited, but that's gonna be the center of gravity. if you were to read this verse, these verses through and then read the whole Gospel of John from left to right, what you're gonna see is that the themes that John introduces in these 18 verses come up again and again and again and again and again. John was made, was written to be read multiple times and to be read multiple times fast and multiple times slow. Uh, because otherwise you're gonna miss what John is talking about when he says things like light, life, sight, faith or believing, testimony and witness. All of those themes are here in the prologue. But if you can think back to uh, Nick's sermon last Sunday, focusing on chapter 20, verses 31, uh, verses 30 and 31, what that verse says, and here it is, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, some of those words should just take you right back to the verses I just read. These things are written, i.e. John is giving testimony. Why? So that you may believe. Just like in the prologue, those who believe get the power to become God's children. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. What is there for everything that comes to be in him? There's life. It's almost like bookends for the gospel. These themes, testimony, belief, Life. So following on from last week, I just want to ask one question. One question to sort of guide our time together today. What's life? What is it really? That's the question for today, and you might think that a simple question like that would have a straightforward answer. Not when I'm done with it. Um, I mean, in one sense, the answer is easy, or at least it's easy sounding. The answer is that Jesus, who is God, is life. And that because he is life, we also can become life. Now, that's easy to say, but in another sense, it's super difficult because it stretches the way that we're going to think about God, the way we're going to think about ourselves, the way we understand basic words that we think we know what we mean when we use them in everyday conversation like life and living. So let's think about it. 
just going to start in verses one, uh, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was with God in the beginning. And then John goes on to describe the moments of creation, how it's through the Word that everything comes into being. John starts basically by explaining the story of Genesis chapter 1. That's the story that you should have in mind when you read the prologue to John, that moment when there is nothing and then suddenly things are exploding into being as God speaks. What John is saying is that when you read Genesis 1, you are seeing the Son of God at work as he is in himself. But when you hear that little bit of the resonance of the story in your ears, it should call to mind the whole story, like not just those first days of creation. So think about how the story goes. Eventually, God creates human beings, man and female, in the image of God. They get the spirit of life breathed into them. They're tending the garden. Then the serpent comes, deceives them. They take the fruit that God said, don't eat of this tree, and the result is death. Cursing, like the ground is cursed. Reproduction is cursed. And then God says to himself, you know what? If these human beings stay in the Garden of Eden, they have access to something called the Tree of Life. And if they eat the Tree of Life, they might live forever. So we have to cast them out of the Garden. And then, Genesis 3.24, he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guide, uh, guard the way to the Tree of Life, i.e., The story of the creation in Genesis and the story of Eden culminates in human beings losing access to life. Think your way through the rest of the Old Testament. It's just punctuated with stories then of horrific death. I mean, for Adam and Eve themselves, it's the story of Cain and Abel. I mean, can you imagine the first time in recorded history where human beings walk out in the field and then they find a corpse And it's not just a corpse. They look down and they see it's their son, the horror that's got to wash over them. I mean, just keep flipping forward through the Old Testament from there. It's, It's one of the most terrifying things about the Old Testament is that people learn that even coming too close to God means death because the impurity and the sin that we are is incompatible with who he is in his holiness and in his life. So like in the wilderness, what God says to Moses on the mountain is no man can see me and live. And when two priests named Nadab and Abihu like go in to worship God, but they do it in a way other than the way that God has commanded, they die there in the presence of God. Or think about the story of Uzzah. Uh, David, King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. He's got it on a cart. The oxen stumble and Uzzah, trying to protect the Ark of God and keep it safe, puts his hand on it to steady it and bang, dead on the spot. The holiness, the immensity, the presence of God is so incompatible with human nature in its fallen state that to come too close means death. Now, that's a few people from the Bible who died in the presence of God, but for those of you who have lived longer than a few years, you know that for most of us, for most of humanity, we just die in the countless ways that human beings die old age, disease, freak accidents, warfare, shipwrecks, car crashes, medical mistakes, we die by suicide. 
almost all of us have some close-up experience with death. And for me, I don't even have to think that hard about it, to think back and just feel the death in the people around me from the last few years. I think about about my cousin, dead of heart failure in his 20s. I remember some very dear friends of mine from Australia whose daughter Dorothy only lived a couple hours. I remember those funerals. We all have those experiences. This wears on us deep in our bones, whether we let ourselves think about it or not. Because let's face it, lots of us are really good at dealing with the cognitive dissonance that comes from that intense awareness of impending death for us and for the people that we love and just forcing our way ahead. And this is the context where the promise of God comes in, where we're all just worn down by the experience of death, knowing that it's coming for us and for the people that we love. This is what God says in Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. I mean, think about that. What Isaiah is basically saying, literally, is that God eats death for breakfast. And and that's what God will do. God will end death to the degree that you ended your toast this morning. It's over, it's done. It makes me think of like the, the last couple lines of my favorite poem, John Donne's Death Be Not Proud. This is what Donne says, he says, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. That's basically where John 1 is leading us. John 1, 3, and 4 says that now human beings can find life in Christ, the word of God. So if you're looking at John 1, 3, and 4 in your Bible, let me just say it may not look like this. Um, I'm gonna try to avoid the total nerdery I could descend into right here, but basically what it boils down to is this. It's really hard to know where to divide these sentences in Greek. It could be one sentence, it could be two sentences. I think that the best reading is to treat it as one long sentence instead of two shorter sentences. So. What had come to be in him was life. What has come to be in him was life. I want to spend most of my time in the next few minutes just unpacking these two two simple phrases, in him and life. Let's start with life. We live at a time in human history, and in particular, like this moment in Western culture, where most people who have thought about life, if they've bothered to think about it, think about it with reference to the natural world, the stuff around it. We think about biology. If you see natural processes, cells dividing, things growing, things producing fruit, like trees, plankton, fish, mammals, human being, then we'd say that that thing is alive, as opposed to like innate. Most of us don't operate with that level of sophistication on an everyday basis. If someone were to ask you what life is, you'd probably just kind of stare at them dumbfounded and that wouldn't be a failure on your part because there are some things that are just so fundamental that we have to act as if we know what we believe even if we couldn't articulate it. Um, And this is one reason why Jesus has to warn us repeatedly about misunderstanding and misusing life. This is why Jesus has to say in places like Luke 12 that we shouldn't think of our money and our possessions as our life. Our life doesn't consist in those things because when you're worn thin by the experience of death and you're looking to distract yourself from it, 
money and possessions and the comforts that they can provide are like the greatest narcotic in the history of humanity. But John doesn't see life this way. For John, life is a divine quality. It's a divine attribute. It's something that really belongs to God and only to God. A key verse here, if you were gonna look throughout the rest of the gospel, this is just one of several, but you could look at John chapter five, verse 26. John writes that just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So think about that. God has life in himself. Any attempt to describe what life is that doesn't start with the letters G-O-D falls short of a completely robust and honest description of life. And because the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and God has life in himself, so also the Son has life in himself. And that is not something that human beings can attain to by like moderating their biology the way some fancy transhumanists are trying to do it. It's not something that any of us can do when we desperately try to buy our way into happiness or fulfillment. Life is God, God is life. Any other definition, any other attempt to attain it necessarily falls short and will not satisfy. And one reason that this makes good sense, frankly, to explain life in this way, life as God, God equals life, is because God is not subject to biology and so God does not die, God does not experience death. I love that John starts his gospel by talking about Genesis. There never is a time when God isn't. God was, God is, God will be. He does not come into being. He does not cease to exist with death. And that means that life, real life, always comes with an adjective attached, even when we don't write it down. And that adjective is eternal life. Because if life is God and God always is, then anything less falls short of life. What John is saying when he says in 1, uh, 3, and 4 that what has come to be in him was life, is saying that other things that are not God, things that were created, things like people, like human beings, can come to be in him and so have life. And that life means eternal life, something we could never produce for ourselves. So sit with that promise. I mean, look around the room. Look deep into your own heart. Think about what it means that you, that the people you most love and care about could might never have to die, not really. That you, your existence, your nature, your person can always be upheld in the God who is life, who has no beginning and no end. And that that's what he wants to give to you. That there's, there's some way, John is hinting here in chapter one, that you can be integrated into that life so that it can become yours too. Lazarus is your future. Everyone who lies in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Jesus' resurrection is your future. He got up from the grave on the third day and so will you. For a long time, for a long, long time when Christians were burying their dead and they were constructing tombstones or engraving tombstones, they used to write one word on it, like underneath the name or the dates. That one word in Latin, resurgam, I will arise. Like over time, 
we started to write things like home at last, eternal rest. But the real Christian hope here is life and eternal life, however good the presence of God is in heaven in the intermediate state. Is that good? Yes. Paul says it would be better to depart and be with Christ. But the Christian hope is not heaven. The Christian hope is eternal life coming to be in him. Okay, so here's the crucial question then. What does it take? How does it come to pass that human beings can be like integrated into this divine life? How can we come to be like God and never die? John says a couple things about this. I'm gonna start with the one that's a little bit more concrete and easy to get our minds around before I move to the one that's a little more abstract. Um, Most of us know who our biological relatives are. Not all of us, but most of us. And if you do, just take a moment to think about the generations that came before you, and maybe if they're around, the generations that are coming after you, your parents, your grandparents, your children. Think about the similarities that you share with those people. So I know for me growing up, I'm gonna date myself here, but back in the days of landlines, when people would call my house and I would pick up the phone and say hello, they'd say, hi, Brian. Like, that happened to me at least three times a week, and I just got used to handing the phone to my dad because we sound vocally so much alike over the phone that you couldn't tell the difference. Or even now, I look at my kids. Um, I share so many interesting quirks with my kids for which I'll one day apologize, but like one of them is that my daughter, for the life of her, she is brilliant, but she cannot see things that are hiding in plain sight. Neither can I. It just, it does not matter. It could be glowing neon orange. I wouldn't see it, neither does she. Or like my son is two and a half, and he, he, I think he weighs like nearly 50 pounds. And he's just solid. He's tall. And I was, I mean, I'm tall, but I'm not like, I'm not like NBA tall, but for my age growing up, I also was really, really, really tall. I share some characteristics in common with my parents. My kids share some characteristics in common with me. The fact that we share those characteristics isn't just because we live together. Like, we're not just socialized into having some of these characteristics in common. I share some things biologically, naturally, physically with my parents, and my kids share some things with me, right? I mean, all of you could tell stories like this, I'm sure. This is the way that John presents the relationship between God and human beings when he says, that for those who believe in his name, he gave the power to become children of God and that these people are born of God. You might be tempted to look at that and say, oh, that's a cute metaphor. I really like that idea. Like being, a, being adopted into the family of God, like sharing all of the benefits that come from being, being in God's family. It's not a metaphor. It's not. It isn't just like legal adoption. He's talking about you and I becoming God's children in much the same way that Jesus is. Not exactly, but to the degree that Jesus is God and shares in the nature of God. He says we are given power. Your translation might say the right to become the children of God. Now that's that's one of those bits that's correct, but also not quite complete. He says we are given power to become the children of God. That power is his own nature. It's the same Greek word that when Jesus says that he has the power, the exousia, to lay down his life and take it up again. That's what we're talking about here. The exousia that gives Jesus life is the exousia, the power 
by which we attain to life. That's one reason why God is life and why we can come to share in it. He gives us his power. And the best way to talk about that is as his family. Now I'm about to transition to something that's a little bit harder to understand. If you find yourself struggling with this next bit and it just feels kind of too abstract or slippery to really get your hands around, I would say just think back to that example, the biological relationship between parents and children. And so then by analogy, the actual experience in our human nature of God giving his nature and power to us grace upon grace from the abundance of Christ. If you can make sense of that, then you can make sense of what I'm about to say next. So hang in there. So if the word life and children seems a bit accessible to you, now we've gotta go and figure out what this really tricky two-letter word means, in. What does it mean to be in him? Um, I really like to sleep with white noise. I mean, for years and years and years and years, summer, winter, I have a fan running, right? Um, When I moved to Australia in 2017, I knew I was toast if I didn't have white noise. So when my wife and I were packing up everything of significance that we owned to put into an 18-wheeler to drive to a seaport in Texas to get loaded onto a cargo ship to go through the Panama Canal, to go across the Pacific Ocean, to clear customs in Sydney, to get loaded onto another 18-wheeler to get driven to my house in Melbourne, you can bet I packed a fan. So, I mean, it was a great day. We had been sitting there waiting, (laughs) waiting, waiting for our cargo container to arrive for, I think, like two or three months at this point, and we were so looking forward to having our stuff back. And so finally the day comes and they start unloading stuff. And with it, you know, a couple other small appliances. I brought along a little TV so I wouldn't have to buy another one in Australia. And I wondered to myself, did this stuff actually survive the trip? I mean, all that time on the boat, all that time crossing the ocean, so I, just, I grabbed this little TV, and I went and plugged it into the wall, and I saw the red light come on, I was like, yes. And then I went to keep unloading. And then I walked back past the room where I had plugged in the TV, and it was smoking. And I thought, ooh. So I like grab it, I run it outside, I throw it down. Some of you uh, already know what has happened here, but what I didn't know was that in Australia, everything is wired to 220, And in America, everything is wired to 110. So if you plug in an appliance that's designed to function at 110 into 220, oh, it's gonna blow. I mean, it's just, it's inevitable. It's only a matter of time, and it's probably not gonna take very long. But what I didn't know is that I wasn't the only person on planet Earth who had this problem, thank God. So some enterprising electrician or engineer or somebody invented a little device called a converter a downstep converter, where you can take this little box, plug it into the wall that's wired at 220, and it'll reduce the charge down to 110, so you can plug your appliances that are designed and built to handle electricity at 110 in, and they'll function, and they won't explode, and you won't die. It's great, awesome. So for my fan to work in Australia, I needed to find a way to connect an incompatible appliance with a dangerously powerful source of life. Without electricity, my fan, it's alive, but it's not really alive. 
Like, it exists, it's alive, but can it really do the thing that it was intended to do? No. On its own, the electricity is far too strong for it. There's gotta be a way to bridge the gap between my fan and the power and the wires of the wall. And in that little story, you can find the whole of the rationale for why Jesus came to earth and what John understands true life in him to be. We, as human beings, we're alive. Every human being who's been born is alive, but it's like alive in air quotes. We're not really alive the way we're built. We need to be plugged into some source of power in life, but the power that's available is too strong. It'd be like Uzzah touching the ark. So we need something or someone to stand in the gap between us, to plug us into him or it so that we can receive from it the power that we need. Think of Jesus as that downstep converter. This is why it's great news for the Christians that in theological terms, Jesus has two natures, fully God, fully human. Think of that downstep converter as being fully electricity and fully an appliance that makes electricity usable. That's what it means to be in him. Um, that word in, in the Gospel of John, does a lot of heavy lifting. So much heavy lifting. In the first instance, in explains the relationship between the Father and the Son. Because think about this, if you had grown up hearing like Moses read to you as a kid, and you knew that one of the most important verses from the Old Testament is what we call the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then suddenly somebody starts talking the way John is talking, and he starts talking about how there's God, yeah, but there's also that's wor this word, and this word is with him. And you're like, okay, at that point I can go along. There's lots of divine beings that aren't God who would be with God, sure. But then he says, and the word was God, and you're like, no, 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 uh-uh. Suddenly, the God you're talking about isn't the God that I think I know from the Bible anymore. So one of the ways that John goes about explaining the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is with this word, in. Uh, if you were gonna look at John chapter 14, again, there, when you preach one verse in John, it's really hard not to preach the whole gospel. So just bear with me here. There's a lot more here than what I'm gonna say, but I think this is enough. John chapter 14, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. So there's this degree of like shared reality. There's also distinction. The Father and the Son are one. The Father and the Son are two. They are both at the same time, and it does not make sense. So if you're trying to make it make sense, surrender now. This is one of those divine mysteries that you recognize has been revealed to us by God in Scripture where the math will always break down. So, I mean, how is this possible? This is one little diagram that sometimes you'll find theologians using, like God in the center, and then you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit around, the Father's not the Son, who's not the Spirit, but all of them are God at the same time. Yeah, I know, it's trippy. Um, but here's the thing, that bit about the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father, and that explains the unity and the separation of the Father and the Son, that's the same way that John talks about you and me and God. 
John 14, 20. You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I've talked about this in the past in sermons sometimes, but this is what ancient philosophers called, quote, participation. And what ancient philosophers were interested in was what happens when you take two physical substances and you kind of mix them together so that they seem to like blend or almost become the same sort of thing. It's like what happens if you take a big chunk of bronze and you throw it into a fire until it becomes glowing and hot. Well, you'd say that the bronze has come to participate in the fire. It's taken on the character, the nature, the properties, the qualities of the fire itself. And this is what John is saying human beings are. We are the bronze that's been chucked into the divine fire so that the fire is in us, suffusing us, running through us. This is what's happening with my fan. That power, that electrical current is running through it so that now, in some sense, like my fan is electricity. If it's plugged into the converter that's plugged into the wall and I start poking around inside my fan with a screwdriver, what's gonna happen? I'm gonna get a little tickle, right? I mean, because that, like, actual electricity is in there. I can't treat my fan as if the electricity were just in the wall anymore. And this is what it means to have life. There is now a converter in the world that can safely transmit the divine electricity to us. That real life that's out there is available in Jesus, the only eternal son, the only begotten God, but the only begotten God who became flesh. And we can be in him. And so if we're in him, then what he has, what he has by nature, can become ours by grace, that is, by gift. He wants us to have it. And that's why I've added that little us circle off to the side of the diagram. This is the nature of life. What God is, truly alive, is what John is saying you can have. Eternal life. You can be as God is forever. Worship team, you guys can uh, get ready to come back up. There's this awesome story in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham kind of looks out in the distance and he sees that there's these three visitors coming to him. And there's this sense from the text, you know, we're not just talking about human beings, like these are kind of divine visitors in some sense, but there's three of them. And Abraham gives them hospitality. I mean, this is just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham gives them hospitality, you know, he prepares food for them, and then they sit down and they eat and drink together. And it, over the course of time, the longer Christians read that story, the more that they, they concluded that this is one of those clearest pictures in the Old Testament of the nature of God as Trinity. That God is three in one, one in three. And the other thing that folks concluded is that if the Trinity invites Abraham to, to like sit with them and eat with them, that this is also the nature of human existence. So look at this picture. It's an Eastern Orthodox icon, but this is one where those, the picture really does preach. Think about the perspective that you're looking at this picture from. You don't see Abraham, even though this is a picture of Genesis 18. You are looking from Abraham's perspective. You are looking, and there is the Holy Trinity sitting before you around the table, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is a spot open right in the middle of the table for you. 
That's the meaning of Christian life. And not just Christian life, but life, in period. And that's why we can say that God is inviting us in him to receive his own power, his own life, sustaining us, resurrecting us, keeping us forever. That's why we say, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Life is not a biological system. Life is not the pleasure that we try to amuse ourselves with while we try to dissociate from the reality of the pending death. Life is God. Life is Christ. And so Christian life is what happens to all of us human beings when we become God's children and we receive his nature. When we participate in him and the life that's in him now flows into us and becomes ours. So if you are a Christian, hear this. Basically what I've been saying for the last half an hour or whatever is this is salvation. Salvation isn't just justification by faith. It is that. It doesn't just mean that your sins are forgiven. It is that. Salvation is also God giving you his own power and nature so that you can be and do forever who God is and what he does. And if you're not a Christian, if you live your life, you realize terrified by the reality of death, Maybe you've lost people that you love. Maybe you've buried a child or a parent recently. Maybe you feel like the icy grip of death coming for you. Maybe you have a terminal diagnosis. This is the life that God invites you to. If you want to know more about that, there's going to be some of us standing down here just to pray at the end of the service. Come down and ask us about it. We'd love to talk with you. But hear this, Christians. Life is who you are. You can't understand yourself as anything less. This is the power that's available to you. This is the hope that should keep us going day in and day out. And this, I think, is an awesome text for the Easter season. This is the great promise that God's life is stronger than death and that he's made a way for us to share in his life. And so to God, immortal, all-powerful, be all glory in the church, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond this morning.